In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day. Uh, we are looking at 1 Samuel. Uh, it'd be a shame to have a reading that long and not take a look at it, wouldn't it? Uh, so two weeks ago, we, uh, we saw that the people of Israel were, uh, were demanding an end to the system of judges. And they wanted a king like all the nations around them had a king. They wanted a king who would judge them and go out before them in battle. And we heard that Jesus is the king that we need. Then last week, we saw that uh, after Saul's predictable failure, God chose and anointed the shepherd boy David to be king. And he wasn't king then. He's not king in our reading today yet. But he is, has been chosen and anointed. Uh, Canon DeFore touched on it last week. But what, what you would have heard from me is that the unlikely choice of little David to be king of God's people uh, points us ahead to the even unlikelier choice of poor, non-military, non-royal, dying on a cross, Jesus, to be the savior of the world and the eternal king over God's people. Because this is how God works. I heard a preacher say this week that God does not go from strength to strength, but God goes through weakness to get to strength. God goes through weakness to get to strength. And that is all the way true, all the way through Scripture. I mean, think about God choosing childless Abraham and Sarah in their 90s to begin his people. Or he picked the stuttering, escaped Khan, Moses, to go and take on Pharaoh and lead God's people out of Egypt. And I could go on and on uh, with examples of how God uh, goes through weakness to get to strength. Because this is how God works. And we see it again in our lesson today as God picks his favorite shepherd boy to take on the mighty warrior giant, Goliath. Now, the story of David and Goliath is one of the most well-known biblical stories that there is. People who have never, ever picked up a Bible in their lives know the story of David and Goliath. When in sports or in uh, business, when the underdog uh, takes on or defeats a powerhouse, it's said to be a story like David and Goliath. It's a famous story. And it's famous for a reason, because all of us know what it's like to be like that little boy facing the giant. On one way or another, we have, we've been there facing a giant of some sort with improbable odds of success. David's victory inspires us, gives us permission, courage to face our own giants. Because what's the moral of an underdog story, I mean, if David did it, you can too, right? And we go right from there to believe in yourself. If you can dream it, you can do it. Now that is very attractive, but as it works out in our life, it is basically untenable. And, and I have a friend who calls uh, these sort of attractive but untenable sayings, Oprah bombs. Oprah bombs. So, sorry to be a downer, 
but uh, I want uh, you to hear loud and clear from me that the story of David and Goliath should not be read as an inspiring underdog story. Or at the very least, that's not the first way we should read it. It's not the first way that we should read it. And the moral of the story is definitely not believe in yourself. In fact, let me tell you that if you ever find yourself facing a giant with a spear and all you have is a rock from the wadi, my best advice to you is to run. Or if you can't run very well, then just give him your wallet. Um, so the immediate question then is, well, how should we read this famous story of David and Goliath? And so I want to suggest to you three ways, or maybe you think of it in like three layers of understanding. So the first way to read David and Goliath is to read it as a story of God's incredible power to achieve his own good purposes. God's incredible power to achieve his own good purposes. So I think that David would tell you that if anyone in this story has impossible odds, it's Goliath. Because he has set himself against God Almighty. God doesn't bring some elite army to face this fearsome warrior. No, in order to prove unquestionably that what David yells to Goliath is true. That the Lord does not save by sword and spear, but the battle belongs to the Lord. To prove this is true, to face the giant warrior, God brought a scrappy but untrained teenager. Now, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, when the Israelites were demanding a king, they said they wanted a king who would stand before them in battle. Well, they got their king, but at least in this battle, King Saul is quivering and quaking back with the troops, right? Just like everybody else. And it is actually unconscionable to me that King Saul would consent to send David out to fight Goliath, not just for the sake of David's life, which was maybe enough, but for placing the fate of his nation on the shoulders of a teenager who had not been trained for battle. And yet what is utter foolishness from a human perspective means that all the glory goes to God and God alone for this victory because God gets to strength through weakness. If you go back and you look at David's reproving speech, somebody in the last service called it trash talk, to Goliath, David is not concerned for himself. There's nothing in there that says, you know, I'm actually much stronger than I look, or, you know, or, or anything like that. You know, he's not saying, you know, you may have a spear, but I'm really good with this sling. And, and you know, there's nothing that hints that David is hoping that maybe a victory here would unveil him to Israel as the true king. None of that. David's unwavering confidence is not in himself in his, and his ambition is not for himself. But his hope is in and for the Lord alone. David's fury with Goliath comes from the fact that Goliath has set himself flagrantly opposing God. And David's fury with the armies of, of God, the Hebrew army, comes from the fact that they're not trusting the God that they have said that they were serving. And though they would 
likely not have noticed it at the time when David sheds Saul's armor and walks alone onto the battlefield, we see that God has raised up the king that they called for, standing before them in battle perfectly and zealously faithful, equipped to fight the enemy on their behalf. In a way that only God could accomplish, God achieves strength through what looks for all the world like weakness. So that's the first layer. That David and Goliath is a story about God's power to achieve his own purposes. And the second layer is to see how this story points us ahead to great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Now as I understand it, it was not unusual in ancient times to have armies fight one another using only single champions like we see in the story. For one thing, the defeated army was going to be conscripted into the victorious army. And so to kill all your future soldiers in battle was sort of self-defeating. There's actually lots of uh, examples or or stories told through history of uh, champions fighting one another. And so the practice was perhaps common. Yet even so, the event of David standing in to fight Goliath on behalf of God's people is for us as Christians profoundly significant. In fact, all the more significant when we realize how unlikely and unqualified David was to be the champion. If you think about it, of all the Hebrews that were gathered on the battle line before Goliath, only David was untrained as a soldier. And only David was under 20 years old. Only David was there by mere happenstance. He was was just bringing last night's leftovers to his brothers for lunch. So Goliath roars his defiant and angry challenge. And the people of God know intuitively that there is nothing they can do to meet that challenge. They are powerless before Goliath, shackled between the fear of what is going to happen to them if they do fight and what is going to happen to them if they don't fight. But young David steps forward with faith in the power and the promises of God. And he fights the battle that the people are unwilling and unable to fight. And victory over the impossible enemy comes not from David's strength, but from the strength of God through weakness. And a thousand years later, David's greater descendant would also step up to fight the impossible enemy of God's people. And this hero would not be a military icon or even a trained rabbi. His qualification rested solely in his faith in the power and the promises of God. His enemy, or the enemy that this champion came to fight, was the great enslaver of mankind, sin and death itself. And on our own, we were powerless before this great enemy, shackled between the shame of our sin and the fear of God's condemnation. And yet, as never before, on the cross of Christ, victory came not by strength, but by weakness. Healing 
came after unconscionable cruelty. Life came after death. David's victory over Goliath as the unlikely champion champion of God's people must point us ahead to Jesus defeating sin and death on the cross as the ultimate champion on behalf of God's people. Now, we love to find ourselves in the Bible's stories. And so we, we see David as the hero, and we, we think, well, maybe we should be, try to be like David. Friends, first, we've got to find ourselves among the scared masses of God's people, cowed by the enemy's threat, and in need of the hero to step forward and win the battle that we could never hope to fight. We must remember, first, that our hero and champion is Jesus Christ. And so the first layer is that the story of David and Goliath is about the power of God to achieve his own purposes. And the second is that David and Goliath must point us ahead to great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, and his victory on the cross. And then, and only then, only in the power and the strength of God's victory through Christ can we begin the third layer. And that is facing our own giants with courage and real hope. Now, if the story of David and Goliath were a cake, then this third layer would be the frosting, right? It's too sugary to have on its own, but really nice when it's paired with some real substance. You know from your own life experience that God does not land the first stone right between the giant's eyes very often, Right? If this third layer is where we begin and end with Oprah bombs like be like David and believe in yourself or face your own giants, then what happens when the recovering addict has a relapse? What happens when the entrepreneur has to liquidate? What happens when the marriage counseling doesn't work? Or when your child has just run away from rehab? It's all just reduced to sugary platitudes. But if we are standing behind the true champion, Jesus Christ, when we are standing in the strength of his victory over sin and death, when we are defined and saved by his victory and glory and not our own, that changes everything. Because then, when the stones that we throw at our own giants miss their mark, or when the giant lands a mighty blow or two of his own, we might have to pivot, but we will not be redefined. God is still working for his promise and power. Jesus is still victorious over sin and death. We still stand in his victory. And so we can get up, and we can wipe ourselves off, and we can try again or take another tactic or we can maybe just let someone else fight for a while because we know that when the stone lands between the eyes of the giant and it will in this life or the next it will we will celebrate and we will give God all the glory but until that happens we can face our giants with courage And faith, knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord and He gets to strength through weakness. 
And so, friends, I don't know what foul and daunting giants that you're facing right now. But I know you are. And I do not want you to hear the story of David and Goliath and think, well, I just have to believe in myself. Instead, I want us all to recall that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And to recall his promise of eternal victory made sure in Jesus Christ. And then, and then, let us move forward in faith. Amen.